Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Last class session we talked about Tarantino's eighth film, Hateful Eight, and this time we're going to talk about his most recent film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, so this is an interesting film. Um, it, it's unlike a lot of other Tarantino films. In fact, it's unlike most of Tarantino's films. It it more closely resembles Jackie Brown, which is something that he's even admitted, that it's more of a movie where you hang out with the characters and it's not quite as... It's not a story in the same way that Quentin has talked about his other films where you know you have a story that's unfolding and and events happen and and the different situations the characters in are progressing because because that story is unfolding as it's being told this is this is a little bit different um and a big part of that is because quentin worked on this script for about five years and in the first few years he just spent trying to figure out who are these characters and once he got the characters down, then he had to figure out what kind of story he wanted to tell. And he went through a lot of different ideas. But what he finally decided on was that the characters were actually strong enough, he felt, to do a day in the life. Just kind of, a, you know, just show us what these people do in their day-to-day -day life, which which isn't really a story. You know, there, um, it's, it's, it's been quoted many times that the idea of storytelling is life with all the boring bits pulled out well this puts all the boring bits back into it because it's just what do these characters do during their day and he felt that because the characters were strong enough and because of the the sort of ticking dramatic clock of you know what we all know to be sharon tate's um <laughs> unfortunate end you know would would kind of act as a sort of motor for the film as we're so, as we know we're just getting closer and closer and closer to this horrific event so quentin goes about and decides to structure this movie very differently and really structures it around these characters which we've talked about how quentin builds characters before and we've talked about you know how he uses those characters but because this is so character centric i really feel that we need to kind of dive into exactly how he went about this and what he started with was he had these three characters that he feels really represents the gamut of people you see on a set you have the actor who isn't doing well, isn't where he wants to be in his career, etc. Um, you know, wants wants more, wants to either recapture old glory or or strive for bigger glory that he feels he's been, he or she has feel, feel they've been denied. Um, you know, you just have the average guy, just the dude who works in Hollywood, but he has to go home on three different freeways to get home. And then, of course, you have the movie star. So let's talk about those characters. So... First up, I'm going to start with Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Rick Dalton, and talk about how how Quentin and Leo kind of crafted that character together. So the first thing Quentin did was he showed Leo several episodes of an old TV show called Wanted, Dead, or Alive, starring Steve McQueen. Um, and he showed it to him for a couple of reasons, in part because... In part because there were obvious parallels to that show, to, to the fictional show that they had created for Rick Dalton, for Leo's character, Bounty Law. You know, they're, they're, they're Westerns, they're about, you know, these guys who are going out, they're, they're bounty hunters, you know. And, and he saw in this fictional 1969 Los Angeles that Quentin had created, or this 1969 world, that Bounty Law would sort of be NBC's rival to Wanted Dead or Alive. 
and he saw Rick and Steve McQueen, Rick Dalton and Steve McQueen is kind of being cut from the same cloth, that they might even be rivals of some kind, you know, that, that, that they would be going out for the same kinds of parts, you know, the same kind of roles when they're on their hiatus, you know, between seasons as they're trying to break into movies. Um, but he also felt that it would help give Leo a sense of this old school leading man that we don't see anymore. Um, this old school leading, leading man that Leo wasn't trained to be this kind of, um, you know, they're well put together, you know, just this very typical sixties leading man, this well put together, you know, the way they've done their hair is the way they will always do their hair. You know, they, they were trained to be likable. Um, and that's not to say that modern actors aren't, 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 you know, don't have charisma about them, but you know, these guys would have never taken on like anti-hero roles. Like that's just not what they did. They had, they had to be the hero. Um, you know, cause, cause we were still stuck in this kind of forties and fifties, well, mostly fifties era of, of storytelling, especially on TV, you know, where guys needed to be the good guy. So, so, so Quentin handpicked like, I don't know, something like six episodes or something like that. Um, for Leo to watch just to see how Steve McQueen would do, you know, just how, just to see that different style of television acting from Steve McQueen. Um, and he showed him other, uh, other guys too. He showed him a whole lot of different actors, you know, that he felt were, had, had certain similarities to, to this fictional character of Rick Dalton. And one of the ones that Leo responded to the most happened to be one of Quentin's favorites. Um, and that was Ralph Meeker. Um, who, if you watch old TV, old movies, you've seen Ralph Meeker somewhere. He's popped up, you know, I, he, he's just in a lot of stuff. Um, so, so that really helped them, you know, kind of figure out, oh, okay. So, so we can borrow some ideas at least, or use Ralph Meeker as kind of a springboard. So Quentin, Quentin would often get caught up in this tremendous backstory that he had come up for Rick because, you know, because he'd been working on this character for five years and he would really deep dive into who this character was and where he came from and all these things. And these are the shows that he worked on and this is this and this is that. And all that was really helpful for Leo, but only up to a point. At a certain point, Leo needed actual direction. He needed something. He needed something that he could do as an actor. You know, because I mean, just think about the word actor, the you know, the word actor comes from the root word to act which is a verb to do things. And so at a certain point, Leo needed something to do, not just something to think about, not just something to feel, not something to quote, remember, you know, from this character's backstory, but something to actually do. And so when he would bring that up to Quentin, Quentin, this is where Quentin's knowledge as a film, hist you know, as a film historian, as a TV historian would come into play. Cause then he could just pivot. And he would talk about other actors that were similar to Rick Dalton. And from there, they could pull out things that were actually actable because, because it would give Leo insight into, into who a person was, how they behaved, things that they would do, etc. And one of the things that ended up becoming really, really important to the Rick Dalton character was, was based off of a, a little known actor by the name of Pete Duell. Who, looking back at Pete Duell, I mean, granted, Pete Duell lived in the 60s and I think died in the 70s. Looking back on it, probably what we would say now is that he was likely bipolar. And that was something that Leo grabbed onto because he's like, ah, well, what if Rick 
is also bipolar and he could have these crazy mood swings and he could drink as a sort of self-medication, which was something Pete Duell did as well. And that became that became massive for the character of Rick Dalton. That became something that now Leo could do. And from there, then Leo comes up with the idea of of Rick Dalton because there's this, there's this great sequence in the film where you see Rick Dalton on a TV set, and and there's this tremendous conflict that brews out of that. But that conflict wasn't originally in the script, but with with this idea of Pete Duell in the back of his mind, you know, and and making Rick Dalton, you know, possibly bipolar and 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 drinking as a self medication that then he came up with the idea of well what if what if Rick Dalton like can't get his lines right you know and then there's this conflict that he needs to overcome and that wasn't originally in the script and when Quentin heard that then he was able to play off of it and in order and and then improve it into what we end up with the final sequence today which if you if you haven't seen the movie you it's 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 probably one of the best scenes in the movie or best sequences in the movie. I mean, it really is. It's one of the ones that everybody talks about. So there's so so just know that that came off of an interplay between Leo and Quentin based off of them kind of finding this 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 sort of intersection where the fiction intersected with real life, you know, to pull from in the name of Pete Duell. Now, the other character the other character that's very, very prominent in this film, alongside Leonardo DiCaprio's Rick Dalton, is Brad Pitt's Cliff Booth. Now, Cliff Booth comes out of a very interesting story that Quentin tells. He says, um, somewhere, somewhere in the late 2000s, you know, somewhere 07, 08, 09, somewhere in that range... Um, Quentin was working with an older action actor and he doesn't name the actor. So I'm not exactly sure who this is. I have a few guesses, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to guess that, uh, on the show. I'll let you guys kind of develop your own theories. Um, but Quentin was working with an older action actor who had had the same stuntman for 15 years. And when they cast this older action actor, um, this actor asked Quentin, if they could throw his stuntman a bone, you know, can, can you just hire him, you know, for the days that I'll be there, you know, it'd really mean a lot to him. It'd mean a lot to me. You know, we've been together for 15 years. It'd just be good. And Quentin said, sure, absolutely. And so the stuntman arrives on set and Quentin's looking at the stuntman and he sees that, you know, he's a little heavier now, you know, a little bit heavier than the actor is, but you can see that about, you know, you know, seven, ten years ago, they would have, they they would have still been, you know, really close lookalikes for each other, and that you know that still would have kind of worked. So this this stuntman does the stunt that they have in the script, and um, and 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 Quentin always kind of treats stunt people the same way he treats actors. That's part of the reason that he ended up using Zoe Bell in Death Proof, you know, because he knew that she had acting capability because of the way he re- she responded to his direction. So. So something that's very common for directors to do is to is to come up to an actor and say that was really like, like I really like that. How did you feel about it? So he does this to the stuntman and the stuntman and he comes up to the stuntman after the stunt study. He says that was really good. You know, are you happy with it? The stuntman says, well, if my if my actor, if 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 so and so is happy, then I'm happy. And Quentin was just like, wow, that's really interesting. 
And he kind of walked away with like, wow, those guys must have a fascinating relationship. I'd really like to learn more about that. You know, you have this actor who's who everywhere he goes, he's trying to get this stuntman a job. You know, I mean, the stuntman is almost an employee of the actor, but they have a friendship, too. But it's a weird friendship because the stuntman's only happy with his work if if his friend slash employer is 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 happy with it. And, he, you know, it's just this kind of weird interplay, you know, and they, and like I said, you know, Quentin said that they they've been working together for something like 15 years at that point. And Quentin really latched onto that dynamic. And that became the inspiration for Cliff Booth, this guy who who is professionally a stuntman, but he's so tied to Rick Dalton and Rick Dalton's career that they hang out, but he also works for him. And, you know, there's this kind of strange, strange interplay. So the last of the three major characters, and I'm only going to talk about the three major characters because there's so many characters in this thing. We could just go on and on and on and on. The last one's Sharon Tate. And I know there's been a lot said about the Sharon Tate character in this film, and there's a lot... People have a lot of thoughts about that. I'm just going to tell you what Quentin said. Quentin was very conscious about not turning Sharon Tate into a Quentin Tarantino character. He was very, very careful of not doing that. So he went to uh, Sharon Tate's family. He went to everybody who was still around who would talk to him about Sharon Tate. And what everybody about, or what everybody who knew Sharon Tate said was she was just light you know she was kind of a light in this world you know she was she was very friendly um she and roman polanski really went out of their way to 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 help people that they met to you know have people over to the house whatever 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 and of course that she loved to dance and so quentin using using these very glowing reviews about how Sharon Tate was too good for this world and that she she loved dance and he 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 tried to fabricate a character that would be as close to Sharon Tate in real life as he possibly could without having really known her at all and he one thing that he was very very intentional about doing was not putting her into a plot in the same way that he had with his own characters like Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton because this was a day in the life story and because he didn't want to turn her into a Tarantino character, what he did was he, he very intentionally made the choice for her to not have anything to, to do other than to just live her life. Because that, in the end, is what she was robbed of, was her life. And so he felt that that would be a very fitting homage or tribute to Sharon Tate. You know, I know that's come on a... Which I know has come under a lot of fire from certain people because everybody, I don't know, for some reason everybody thinks everything's a political statement. Anyway, I I don't want to get in that. I, I'm just telling you what Quentin said. Um, so moving on to talk about, I mean, what we just mentioned was, you know, this idea of Sharon Tate. I mean, the, the actual Sharon Tate was murdered in real life in 1969. And, and so Quentin knew that that, 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 that that was going to have a lot to do with the end of the movie. And so what Quentin did is he started at the end and worked backwards. Because remember, remember we're doing a day in the life and there's no, there's no plot really to drive it forward. All we have is this kind of ticking time bomb at the end of the movie. 
So, so he felt that it would be a good idea to start at the end and then work backwards, which was the first time he'd ever really done that. I mean, he's, he's always played with, with, with timelines anyway, but this was the first time that that's what he, that, that was how he physically wrote it. And this is what he had to say about that. He said, and I quote, um, hold on, where, where did I pull this from? Okay. This is from the DGA podcast. Um, the Directors Guild of America podcast, uh, I think he was interviewed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Quentin said, um, we know about Sharon's murder, so that's going to happen. Whether I show it or not, it's going to happen. Even if I stop in February, if I ended the movie August 7th, right, that's going to happen. And most of the audience members are going to know that. So that can act as a dramatic motor because you now have, because you know this horrible shoe will drop and every scene in the movie is taking you closer to that shoe. So this is interesting to me because this is one of the reasons that this movie actually ends up working because this movie could have been really horribly boring if you had just taken these three characters and not put it against that timeline. This movie doesn't work, or at least not work very well. Um, you know, and 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 granted, not everybody liked the movie, and that's okay. You know, Tarantino movies are always very polarizing. That's just kind of how he makes films, but. This dramatic clock combined with the just getting to hang out with these characters for a day is the reason I, I, I personally went to the theater and saw this movie five times. Um, <laughs> so, you know, for me, it worked. For a lot of other people, it worked. It was, it's a fantastic film to watch, I think. Um, and a big part of that is this dramatic clock, this 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 very intentional structure that he built into it where, because, okay. So for example, a film like Roma, I saw Roma. I personally wasn't a fan. I know a lot of other people were, I didn't enjoy Roma, but Roma didn't have this ticking clock at the end that I knew where we were going with it. It just seemed like a meandering day in the life film, which is what it was. Um, but this film is a meandering day in the life film, but you know we're meandering to something very, very specific. So, that's Quentin Tarantino's ninth film. Supposedly, we only have one more feature film from Quentin Tarantino. Um, I'm very, very excited to see whatever that is. That also wraps up um, this semester of Hitchcock University. I want to thank everybody for tuning in for another wonderful, wonderful semester. I hope everyone had just as good a time listening to these as I did making these. And um, we're going to be back next semester after the new year. I imagine I'm going to try to get a syllabus up and the first episode no later than January 6th. Okay? So that's when we'll be back, January 6th, hopefully. Uh, we will be back with Billy Wilder, who I'm very excited for. He's one of my personal favorite filmmakers. If you don't know anything about Billy Wilder, I suggest you go look him up. Um, I imagine next semester is going to be a lot more about writing than it is directing. There was a poll taken in Hollywood amongst uh, contemporary filmmakers today, and um, they were asked who was the greatest writer. Um you know, of films and Billy Wilder was, uh, was, was voted number one. Um, so I, so that'll be very exciting. Um, anyway, yeah. Thank you all for listening again to a wonderful semester at Hitchcock university where you learn filmmaking from the masters. 
Um, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, otherwise, uh, feel free to email us at hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com. Um, you can also hit us up on Facebook. There's a Hitchcock University page there. There's a Twitter page, uh, Hitchcock underscore U as in university, not Hitch underscore U as I found out. I'm, I'm, I'm so bad with social media that I don't... Um, not a lot going on there, but but it is a place that you can reach out to us, and hopefully down the road I get better at that. I've just been uh, incredibly busy this year, um, and it's been difficult to keep up with this already. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, a whole semester of Billy Wilder. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll, uh, we'll see you again January 6th.